And it's always the balance because I also want to be artistic and I want to have creative license. But uh, at the end of the day, that those bills come every month, whether you like it or not. That's the voice of Joel Elwood, owner of Elwood Design Co. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Joel Elwood, owner of the Orange, California-based furniture company, Elwood Design Co. If you want to get into the numbers of a furniture company, Joel is the person you want to talk to because he knows that yes, it is an artistic industry, but to stay in business, you need to know your numbers inside and out. And that is exactly what he shares in this episode. Every company is different and Joel acknowledges that but there are some constants, or at least constant things that you should be looking out for. Follow along as we talk about the challenges of finding a shop, the importance of price first when it comes to clients, what it really costs to start a furniture business, and much more. It was a fantastic conversation I had with Joel, one that I'm excited to share. So let's start the episode and hear about Joel's experience in his own words. I'd say furniture wasn't really on my radar till about 10 years ago. Um, as a kid, I grew up, my mom loved interior design. She wasn't an d- interior designer, but she just loved houses. And she was always kind of renovating a room or, you know, um, looking at furniture for living room or dining room or whatever it was. And um, we used to go to open houses on Sundays and we'd drive around. We had a house, but we just liked like popping in different houses and kind of um, seeing what other people were living in and, and kind of imagining futures for ourselves, And, um, so I kind of grew up with a love for design and we used to watch, you know, HGTV. And I remember at Thanksgiving kind of back in the day, been watching um, this old house. And, um, so I always had a love for like homes and renovation and construction, but, but furniture wasn't on, on the radar really. And, um, when I was in high school, a guy at our church offered me a job working for his construction company. And so I showed up at this lakeside home and um, this nice multi-million dollar home. And he handed me a sledgehammer and said, uh, I want you to take all the walls down in this room. <laughs> As a 16 year old kid, 15 year old kid, it was like, uh, it was heaven. You know, I just got to smash stuff. Um, later, I realized you have to pick that stuff up and haul it out to the to the trash, which, uh, you know, is the, the bad part, but, um, I fell in love with, uh, kind of home renovation. And so over the next few years, I worked, uh, for a painter, worked for a tiler. i just kind of got familiar with the trades and, um, 
And at the same time, I went off to college and did my degree in business. Um, but uh, I, I ended up um, getting married and going to work for a church in California. I got my master's degree and a theology degree, and I was on track to kind of work in a church for the rest of my life. And I thought that was where I was headed. And um, about 10 years ago or so, my wife and I uh, were fortunate enough to purchase a home here in, in California. And it was a complete fixer upper. You know, every surface needed to be touched the walls, the floors, the electrical, plumbing. You know, for, for me, that was a dream because I had that background and all those things. And I was just dying to get to that point where I could, could uh, put my hands on some work. And, um, and so we started doing some renovations in the house. And as we were doing that um, at the church that I was working at, which was a pretty large church, they actually had a, a shop for the repair staff and a couple of guys in there were cabinet builders. And so I was uh, kind of around that and I, I worked as a youth pastor. And so I was always building things for the youth ministry. And, and, um, and then I, we were renovating our house and we had this old Ikea TV cabinet that we didn't like. And I thought, you know what, I've seen some of that walnut ply that they've been using in the shop. I wonder if I could just buy a sheet and try to make a little, you know, kind of mid-century modern um, TV cabinet. And so, um, so I, you know, kind of tooled up a little bit in the shop in my garage and, um, and built this cabinet. And it was like, all of a sudden, I just found this love for furniture. And it was also at the same time when Instagram was kind of blown up in that sense, in terms of makers on there. Um, and so there's just a lot of inspiring content there. And, um, you know, it's kind of the classic story that a lot of people have where I built that and then friends came over and went, that's awesome. You know, would you consider building something for us? And so, you know, it, it kind of slowly worked its way up for, for a while. It was just paying for new tools. So in my mind, it wasn't going to be a career. It was still just, hey, I'll, I'll be able to buy some festival products if I build this coffee table or I'll be able to get that, you know, new router or whatever it was, the saw stop eventually. And um, and then after a few years of kind of doing that on the side and really building up my tools, um, there was a local furniture maker who I'd followed for a while, Brandon over at uh, Monkwood. And uh, I'd heard he had had some apprentices come in and just kind of, you know, mirror him for a while. And so I reached out to him and, and we set it up for me to come once a week and apprentice with him in, at his shop. And so that was the first time that I kind of went, oh, you could actually make a living building furniture. And Brandon makes these incredible studio desks um, and he's, he's super niche in it, but he's as good as it comes when it comes to his line of work. And I thought, man, okay, th that was the first time maybe the seed was planted that, that this thing that was kind of a hobby could actually be um, an income producing uh, reality for me. And so, so the next few years, I just kept building more and more pieces of furniture and then COVID hit. And the interesting part for COVID for me was yeah, um, COVID actually kind of boosted sales for me. So I was doing about $15,000 a year pre-COVID on the side, you know, uh, of revenue. And then COVID hit and that first year, it jumped to like 35,000 in revenue. And a lot of that was through Etsy because as soon as COVID shut down, I kind of went, maybe, maybe it makes sense to kind of pivot to small items that are shippable because people are home, they're looking at their house, they're, they're finding things they want. And, um, and so I pivoted to Etsy and that kind of took off. And at the same time, my job at the church, um, I had been wrestling with it for a while. I wasn't totally satisfied with what I was doing. And um, there were lots of elements that I loved about it, but I always just kind of had this underlying sense of this is, uh, this isn't, doesn't feel 
like a perfect fit for me anymore. And that was kind of a hard reality to let one dream go to pursue another dream. But uh, last May, um, I finally made that call to go, man, I, I'm seeing enough monthly income that if, if this went from part-time to full-time, it should be able to support us and sustain us at a, at a fairly similar pay level um, to what I have. So last May, I went out full-time and then it took me about seven months to get out of my shop at my house into a into an actual industrial space. And we can talk more about that because that was a challenge in itself. Um, and now we're operating in a, in a 1700 square foot shop and um, things have been going really well. Still a lot left to figure out and to refine and try to try to not just grow revenue, but grow profit. Um, but it's been a it's been a really fun journey so far. There is always going to be more things to do and more things on the list and things to refine. So just reminding you and everybody out there, that <laughs> no matter if it's your your first day or you've been doing it for 50 years, there's still the next day there's going to be things to to change and refine and 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 work because even if your idea of the business doesn't change, the business around you changes and things that clients want and and tools and the industry in general is always adjusting. And to keep up with it, you have to adjust yourself as well. That's right. You said that your story is kind of like the classic story. And I know what you're saying. People have gone down this road before. It's a, a time-tested story of I needed furniture, so I built furniture, and then people liked it, and it became a furniture company. So it is it is a classic story, but I always remind people who are saying, oh, my story is the classic story, and it feels like a, a throwaway because everybody's heard it before, that not everybody who goes down that road, not everybody who starts building furniture and who gets recognized for their furniture by friends and family and does it not everybody takes that from a hobby a fun hobby that you're doing for friends and family to a real business like you did and making that that jump and stepping over that threshold to say this is more than just a fun hobby this is how i'm going to provide for the people in my life who i need to help provide for it's a it's a big step. So when you decided that you were looking at your numbers and I know that you're a, a business oriented person, a numbers oriented person, when you were looking at your numbers, what was that factor that made you think, okay, I can do this as a full-time job? Yeah. Well, there's there was a lot of um, fear in all of it. So let me preface it with that because I had a good job. I was uh, I was paid pretty well and had all the benefits of working for a large organization, right? So I had retirement matching. I had um, uh, the the church had a daycare, so I had fifty percent off daycare, and I have four kids, so that was really helpful. Um, I had uh, you know, like I said, good salary. I had like an auto allowance, a cell phone allowance, and um, there were lots of things to consider when I was considering losing that income. It wasn't just the income, it was also those added benefits. And so when I was looking at my numbers from the business, I knew, okay, here's what I need to make. Here's what I'm bringing in. Um, here's what my real world expenses are, because it's really easy to get confused with revenue and profit. 
and thinking, oh, I've done all this in sales and but not really taking a hard look at what your real world expenses are, right? So taking it from, it's great if you can make 35,000 on the side, but if you spent 32,000 to do that, um, it, it may not be a sustainable business, you know? Um, and so for me, that, that process looked like, okay, I was giving about one day a week. I had Fridays off at the church, so I was doing one day a week uh, where I had a chance to build. And then I would go out one or two nights a week, you know, after the kids are down, um, and work. And so as I looked at those numbers though, uh, at that point, uh, you know, I, the landscape's always shifting and I would say it's shifted even more in the last three years than it has prior to that. But, um, I, I can't really say that for sure. Cause I wasn't working before that, but, um, but at least in the last three years, it feels like things have changed so much, but at that point, shipping wasn't horrible. Um, so my cost to ship items on Etsy was, was, wasn't too bad. Um, I had a decent profit margin. So on, on that 35,000 in revenue, I probably made like 24, 25,000. I didn't have a shop, so I didn't have shop fees. Um, I wasn't paying at that point because I was still operating in my, out of my house. I wasn't paying insurance. Um, I probably should have, but I wasn't paying general insurance. I wasn't paying building insurance. I wasn't paying, you know, all, all these overhead costs that when you go, uh, into a shop and when you become a little more legitimized, um, start to eat in at that, at that profit. But so for me, um, there, there's a couple of things we did too. I, I sit set aside. So for about a year, we were kind of pondering this move to full-time. And so I had started setting aside about a year's, I was able to set aside about a year's salary. Um, so that if in that first year I didn't make a dime, we would still be okay. And I wouldn't be stressed out uh, just trying to make ends meet. We wanted to be able to, to be able to build the company in a way that wasn't totally guided by the need for immediate money. So, but as we looked at it, we just went, gosh, up one, one day a month, you know, you multiply that by five. And I, I know it's not that simple, but you know, it could actually provide, you know, a, a reasonable salary to start. And so we kind of, we set things in place. We, we didn't jump in blindly. We kind of did some math. Um, there were some hurdles I didn't see coming, but none, nonetheless, we just tried to price it out and went, you know what, this is a risk, but um, it's a risk that I think I'll regret if I don't take. And and I'm young enough. I mean, I'm 30. I was 38 at the time. I'm, I'm feels a little late to be changing your career, but uh, I knew like, hey, there's enough years ahead of me that if this doesn't work out, we can go back to something that will work, but I would regret not not taking that leap now i have to ask what were the hurdles that you didn't see coming because everybody everybody thinks that they they have the plan they see the map laid out ahead of them and they say this is what i'm going to do but the things that they don't see are the things that always always get them so what's some stuff that that you didn't see coming that people should be accounting for when they're when they're thinking about making this move to go full time the the biggest thing for me to start and this could be contextual so it depends on your area where you live what you know what part of the country but i'm in orange county it's incredibly dense a uh, high level of wealth uh, very expensive to live here in orange county california um and so when i launched full time my thought was okay well, i can operate out of the garage so we had i had already converted our garage into a, a workshop you know it was it nobody was going to park a car in there um so i thought okay you know i can i can do that for a while till i can get into a shop 
And then I started looking for shops and I, I didn't anticipate that being a challenge. And all of a sudden I realized there's incredible competition for shops in Orange County. And not only that, but most industrial shops, which, you, you know, you have to be zoned industrial to be able to operate a wood shop. They didn't want wood shops in there. They didn't want cabinet shops. They didn't want wood shops. They didn't want auto guys. They didn't want anything messy or anything that had a fire risk to it. And so I probably called 75 different shops over the course of six months to try to just go see them. And out of those 75, I'd say 70, 70 probably immediately told me no over the phone. That they wouldn't even consider me because of I'm, I'm a wood shop uh, making furniture. Um, so that was that was a hurdle that was like, oh, this is this is was unexpected. I thought I'd be able to move into a shop right away because, you know, in a one car garage or two car garage, you're limited in your in your flow process. flow. You can only build so many things in a two car garage. Um, at a time. And so that kind of bottlenecked me. Um, and I knew I, I need to get into a larger space to be able to, to handle, you know, four to six projects at a time. So then finally, out of those five shops that were available, then you start to discover, okay, we want your last two years of financials, right? Tell us how your business has done the last two years for us to feel confident that you can pay your, your bill, you know? And so then it's tricky because now you're going, well, okay, last year I had 35,000 revenue, that's not even enough to cover the cost of the shop. How do I convince the shop owner that that was part-time? That was, you know, if you multiply that out, that that should cover it or, um, and I, I, financially we were pretty well off. So I was able to kind of like give a picture of my personal assets to try to, to try to help bolster some of that. And yet even that was challenging. I, I, I had this opportunity at a shop uh, there was a, a furniture maker who had been in it for 25 years. And so it was all dialed in. It was, it had all the lines run, it had airlines run everywhere. It was like, it, it was as, as plug and play as you get for a furniture maker to hop into a shop, but it was 4,000 square feet in Orange County. And uh, at $1.50 a square foot, it was expensive. And, um, and there was already another subleaser, an unofficial subleaser with the past furniture maker who helped him offset it. But, um, you know, I went through this hoop of just putting all my financials together, trying to convince this guy and, and it fell through. And so, um, so it took me, it took me about seven months, I think it was to, to actually finally land a shop. And I discovered right away that when there's an opening, you take it, you know, you walk in and if you're happy with it, you make the call right there. There's, there's no time. It's kind of like the housing market, you, you know, you kind of had to pull the trigger, um, but so that was a challenge for me. I really wanted to be in a shop earlier and it was way harder than I anticipated. I, I felt like I had lost um, two or three jobs where a client came to my house. And as soon as they kind of saw the shop was attached to the house, I kind of sensed that maybe it made them feel a little uneasy about spending the type of money they were going to spend on a dining table with me. So anyway, that was that was one of the biggest hurdles. And then after that was just the cost of insurance. And so, you know, you have to have um, general liability insurance. You have to have workers comp when you hire people. And the, the cost of workers comp was so expensive to have an employee in a shop. You know, it's a, probably about as dangerous of a place, I guess, as, as you could have an employee. And so I, I think the uh, my hope was to hire a bunch of employees quickly. And I, I soon discovered that employees are really expensive. So that was probably the second thing that was a hurdle. I, I now have a guy who works for me, which is great, um, but it, it was just an unexpected uh, hurdle for me. There's there's the feeling that you have personally when you say, I'm a full-time 
furniture maker now. There's there's a business here. This is my furniture business. And you mentally and physically put that out in the world. And so you think that you have a furniture company. But like you found out and like a lot of people find out, it's one thing to say, I have a furniture company and then have it for yourself. But it's another thing when you have to get into the technical parts of it, when you have to get into the insurance, when you have to get into the leasing. Yes, you tell the outside world that you have a furniture company, but then you have to show them and you can't always show them because you're just starting out. And there's there's that phase where you're going for insurance and they're saying, you know, what were your last couple years of revenue or what insurance did you have before? And you have to say, oh, I, I, I don't have any. And then you can't get it or you can't get best rates. And <laughs> there's, there's you saying you're a furniture company. And then there's actually you being a furniture company. And it's a, it seems like a small distinction, but it, it is a real distinction when when you need to do real things in the real world. Yeah, I think when you um, when you're doing it part time, it's easy just to kind of let things fly, you know, let things go. Okay, well, I don't have insurance. That's you know, I'm not doing that much in sales. I'm shipping things on Etsy. Or I'm you know, how much risk is there in that? And then when it's actually your source of income and it's actually your dollars that are going into all of that, not just like the operational cost, but all of the tooling, all the stuff you do to build up, you go, I've really got to protect this and I got to make sure that I'm covering my own back. And, and, um, and then that's where the real world part that nobody sees on Instagram is right. Where you've got, you actually really have to set aside money for sales tax because you actually have to pay a sales tax bill, you know? And um, you want to protect yourself with an LLC. And in California, just to open an LLC is 800 bucks. Then you have your website operating costs. You have um, gas, travel, all that time. You know, like all those things start to become realities that were maybe things that were, you didn't really have to consider when it was a part-time hobby. And now that you're trying to go legitimate in terms of being a, a you know, having a, a, an actual location, um, those things start to like add up and they start to weigh on you as a business owner when you have just little bill after little bill, you know, coming in all the time. And it feels like the worst possible time because you're, you're getting all these little bills and you're having to keep track of all this new stuff that pops up. And you're saying, I didn't know I needed that. I didn't know I needed that. There's a, a building inspector coming in to check out the space. Do I have all the right things? Is everything up to code? Do I have the insurance? Do I do all this? Do I, am I, am I keeping the lights on? Am I putting aside money? And you're adding these all up in your head. And then you, you take a breath and you say, oh, wait, I have to actually build furniture. I actually have to do something in this shop. I'm not I'm not just doing the business side. I'm doing the furniture side too. And so when you're starting a business, <laughs> my my best advice and I I feel like this is probably going to be your advice as well, try to ask somebody who's been there before about what are the things that you don't see. Like you said, the things that you don't see on Instagram, the things that that you wouldn't know unless you've already been there, what are those issues? And start trying to tackle those issues from the very beginning or start laying out a plan if something like that comes up. Yeah, and you know, one of the things, Ethan, I think is so great 
has been so great and hopefully will continue to be great about Instagram is the furniture community is generous. People are like willing to share that information if you go ask them. Um, in fact, last earlier this year, I messaged uh, Josh over at a carpenter sign because I've followed his story for the last few years. And I just said, hey, is there any chance I could pay you for an hour of your time, you know, just to pick your brain? Because I'm I'm launching and I want to kind of discover some of the things I don't know yet. And um, he was generous enough to even just hop on a call with me for an hour and just let me kind of pick his brain and ask questions and fire away. And I thought, this is such a cool community that people are willing to give of their time. I think when you've gone through it, you're kind of happy to help someone else like see, you know, some things that are coming up that they might not notice. So that's one of the parts I love about the woodworking community. Well, it's painful. The people who have been through it know that it's painful and you don't want to see anyone go through the hardships that you've gone through and you want to be able to share that. And they're not industry secrets. It's not an industry secret that you need different types of insurance when you're building furniture. It's not an industry secret. So it's not something that people are going to, to hold tight to their chest. It's something that that is out there that you just have to ask somebody who's been there what it's all about. Absolutely. And I, and so uh, that would be one of my advice for sure. If you're, if you're considering it, and actually I've done this for, with a few people who've, who've messaged me, um, it is like, just don't hesitate to reach out because man, people will, will, um, oftentimes be very generous with that and it can save you, um, a lot of money. Honestly, it can save you a lot of money. So saving money, making money, money in general is, is, is unfortunately a large, large part of the furniture business. And we all want it to be artistic and we all want to be for the love of the craft, but we also need to make money. We need to be able to sustain the business, sustain our lives. And so money is, is an important thing. And you've been open about the amount of money you were making, the revenue you were making and how you thought about that to go full time. And I know you said I was making this all in one day a week times that by five and I've got myself a business. You say that's not really how you thought about it, but it's, it's kind of how you thought about it. How has that played out where you are then to where you are now? What is the, the financial picture look like? Yeah. Well, then I didn't realize all the overhead costs. I mean, I, I, in generalities, I knew that they existed, but I, and I had thought them, thought about them, but it's another thing when you're actually, you know, actually calling a, a landlord, trying to figure out what the price per foot is and what the camp fees are and all, all of that sort of stuff. But um, uh, as I was looking at it, my thought initially when I launched was, okay, in year one, if I can do a hundred thousand in sales and if I can keep expenses to 40,000, you know, I can, I can have 60,000 left over. And um, that's not necessarily a great salary for Orange County, but it's enough that we could get by, pay our bills year one, kind of get the ground running. Um, and after that, you know, we'd love to, to see revenue double maybe every year at, at that point. Um, so the dream for me was always trying to get a shop of like, I don't know, five to 10 employees. Like I, I don't really ever want to build a giant brand. I'd love to have something that feels 
like it's a creative community, it's artistic. So that, that was a little bit of like the, you know, the question is always like, what are you trying to build? You know, the, the more, you know, what you're trying to build at the start, the better steps you can take to get there. So if you're trying to build a cruise ship, you're going to take certain steps. And if you're trying to build a one man sailboat, you're going to take different steps. And so for me, it was, okay, how can I, uh, my wife works full-time. So we we're fortunate enough that we have kind of that buffer as well, that, that she's bringing in income. So, um, so, but for me, it was, okay, if we could, if we could pull 60 out of the first year, that would be great. Um, and we did about a hundred grand in the first year and profit actually ended up only being about uh, 35 to 40 grand, somewhere in that range. Um, so, you know, it wasn't as good of a year as I hoped, but there were some, some things that brought that down. You know, I bought some extra tools. It's hard as a furniture maker, not to get enticed by buying some new tools. Um, and uh, we were, we were fine. And then, you know, I think there's always the question, like if you, if you're like me and you're working out of your shop or you had a free space to work, okay, when, when I get an actual shop, when it's bigger and legitimate and has an address and clients can come to it, will that help? You know, I'm, I'm on Google and it's no longer showing my house, but it's showing an industrial shop, you know, will that help boost the amount of uh, inquiries that are coming in? And for me, it did. So when I, when I launched, uh, literally, uh, I'd say January through March of the year of earlier this year, when I launched, I had done like, I don't know, 15 to $20,000 in sales. It, it actually wasn't a fantastic start to the year. And then uh, I launched and got my shop uh, March 1st. And then since March 1st, I've been averaging closer to 13 to 15,000 a month in sales. Um and you know, cash flow is its own thing. Sometimes you know, twenty thousand comes in one month, and then eight the next month. It's hard, it's hard to um, totally uh, pin it down. But but um, revenue's been going up uh, increasingly since since I got into my shop. I've had the ability to work on four or five jobs at once, so we're pushing out product faster. I was able to hire a full time employee, um, and so we're we're on pace this year to do about one hundred and sixty. In revenue, which still is below what I would like it to be, I was hoping to kind of hit 200 this year. And uh, you know, barring a miracle in the last two months here, I, you know, we'll be closer to the 160 to 180 range, um, and that's revenue. Um, this this year, launching the shop, you know, one of the hurdles I, I don't think I mentioned earlier is just startup costs, and that's not that's not really a hidden cost, right? You you know, when you launch a business, there's going to be startup costs, and I, you you hear all the time, you know, it takes three to five years for a business to be profitable, but it still is painful to go through that. So you know, you you, you I rented this shop, and it's I pay about three thousand a month for my shop, a seventeen hundred square foot shop. And, you know, you got to put your security deposit down and that, you know, that was like a $7,000, you know, on top of the first month's rent. So you drop 10 grand your first month in your shop, you know, and then you've got a couple thousand dollars of electrical work to get all your, your lines run for your dedicated tools. And you've got uh, all those little items that when you're in a one car or two car garage, like you make do with, and then you get into a 1700 square foot shop and it's like, oh, I need, I need this and I need that. And some of them are, are subjective as to whether you need them. And some of them are like, no, I just, I need dust collection on every tool. So financially, uh, where we, where we'd love to go next year, you know, for it to be really sustainable for me and an employee, we got to get over 
250 probably realistically for it to, to last long term. Um, we've, like I said, been able to have some buffer with some savings. Um, we've been able to try to minimize costs and do some things, but it's a it's a journey and it's a process of trying to grow revenue. And and I think right now too, you know, there's so much unknown with the economy, uh, how things are going, you know, buyers trends, you know, during COVID, obviously people are focused on furniture. Will that continue going forward? Um, and I think it, I think there's always a market. So it's just a matter of being able to read the landscape and shift with it and, and, you know, shift your strategies as needed to, to make things work. We've talked about the money coming in. We've talked about how you're building the furniture, but we haven't talked about the clients yet and thinking, going back to that. And I know you said it sort of off the cuff, the one day a week times five, that will be me full time. But if you're going full-time if you're doing it more days a week you need more clients to fill in that space so how are you going about getting your clients and i know that you're doing residential but you're also doing commercial so on both of those fronts how are you making it happen yeah it's it started fortunately for me because i've been operating for a while the friends and family phase kind of ended you know early on and occasionally you still get a friend or family asking for something but uh i've had a lot of clients through referrals over the last few years um when i went full time i was getting you know enough enough requests every month that i was having to say no to a to a good number of them just because of my time and limited capacity so there was a little bit of build up i had probably i don't know two months of full time work lined up when i when i got the shop um but then uh there was a little bit of just natural um i i i did some real basic things right i i got on google and i had it registered so if you search for uh, my shop, you can find it on Google Maps and Apple Maps. And um, that sounds so silly, but it's a really, I, I've had people walk in and buy a $6,000 dining table off of me. Um, so, so simple things like that. Um, I got, uh, it used to be that Instagram generated a lot of leads for me. I used to get, I don't know, five to 10 a, a month of solid leads that were people who had already kind of filtered through and were, had seen my pricing, were familiar with my work and were kind of ready to to do something um, that's since Instagram's evolved, that's slowed down. And ironically, uh, a lot of work is coming through. I'm, I'm on Yelp, which is, I didn't think Yelp would be helpful. Um, and, uh, but I thought, you know, it can't hurt to be on Yelp. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I pay for about $150 a month in, in Yelp ads. And uh, that started in June. And I would say I've probably brought in 75,000 in, in revenue off of, people who came to me through Yelp. Um, so it's really simple things sometimes like that. Uh, I think there is something to staying uh, relatively active on Instagram. It's not my forte. I'm not uh, great at it. I'm terrible at making reels, but um, but kind of showing up there every so often to remind people um, I, the number of times that a client goes, oh yeah, you know, Cindy referred us to you. You built this table for her. Okay, cool. Um, or we saw your work here at RSVP or, you know, the, I get a lot of referral based um, uh, work. And um, for instance, this summer we got a job, we, we did a whole office for a, um, an incubator company in Laguna Beach. And that owner was friends with an owner who was opening a, a studio 
uh, down the street. And so she called me and said, hey, I saw your work there. We'd love for you to come do our place. And so between those two jobs, that was almost $25,000 worth of work. So it comes in at odd places, odd times. Honestly, it's an area I still need to grow in. I'd love to, to, I'm realizing I need to hire someone to do my SEO and to do Google ads and to, to probably at some point help with Instagram and take some of that, uh, the front door side of the business for me, um, the operational side of that. Um, but, but mostly word of mouth and then, and then through some of those really simple uh, business practices. So a lot of your client stories that you've, you've talked about so far, and this could just be the ones you talk about, but it, it definitely stood out for me. And you say it in your, your literature about your company and it, it seems to be a running thread throughout how you do business. You're very one-on-one with the client. You want the client to come to your shop. You said when you were in your garage, you'd have clients there and some people didn't think it was professional enough. And when you opened up your new shop, there's people who just walk in and you invite clients to come in. And having a client be a part of the process is great. They feel involved. They feel like they're really building it alongside with you. And there are great clients and there are, and there's nothing wrong with having a relationship with a client. But there's the flip side of that where you're running a business and you might have 10 clients that month that you're working with. And as much as you love that personal touch and as much as that's a part of your business, when you're running a business, sometimes you can't give that personal touch every single time. Or a client could feel very comfortable with you and then start asking for a lot of change orders or things along those lines. So how have you been been balancing the personal client relationship, which is great and I highly recommend, but also keeping the client as a client instead of a friend. Yeah, that's something that's a challenge, but just one of the things that just kind of you learn to refine through failure. (laughs) You know, um, part of it is as I've grown the company, one one of the ways to look at it is if I was going to spend $7,500 on a dining table um, and I can't always put myself in my client's shoes. That's the hard part. There's, there's a ton of wealth in Orange County. And so people with a lot of money don't think like people with an average amount of money, you know, or, or, there's just a different mentality, but, but for me, I go, I would want to to have some say in what that table looks like and what type of finish they put on it Um, with it, with a reasonable amount of like, okay, we also trust you to build a, you know, great piece. And we're not going to, we're not going to ask you if that's galvanized screws used or not or whatever it is. Um, But uh, yeah, different clients, you can read, you learn to read clients right away. Um, so I've learned to go, okay, this client's going to be, um, this is going to be a tricky client if we say yes to this job. Um, and sometimes I'll say no, because I get that sense of, ah, this is just going to end up going, not, not going in the right direction. The, the good part is we've really built up referrals around people we've really enjoyed working with. And when you go through referrals a lot, you tend to work with similar type people. Um, and so we've been fortunate. We've worked with a lot of really great people. Um, but there are there are occasionally the client who wants to make like 
you know, 50 different change orders at the end. And it's, it's never like, Hey, we're disappointed in the piece. It's just like, well, what if we made the top like an inch smaller or, you know, I, I'd like it to be an inch higher. Right. You know um, so we've never had anything super dramatic, but um, it, it is a challenge trying to balance that relationship. I, I really enjoy that. That's the, the side of the business. I wasn't totally expecting to enjoy as much as I do. But um, I've I've enjoyed seeing people's homes, figuring out how to help them find the piece that makes the mes- most sense for their style in their home, and um, and then I, I've also uh, I've also gotten much quicker at getting to a price with the client before I go too far down the road, and I think that's a really helpful thing to do because if you hold off on price towards the end of an hour conversation or or let's say multiple email conversation then you're going to have invested all this time. And then you set, you, you know, you give them a general price and they just go, Oh, that's, I can't do that. Um, so I've learned to weed out that, that process of let's go back and forth 20 times before we come to a price. I, I'm usually pretty upfront in the first conversation to go, you might be looking at three to 5,000 here. It could be, you know, 7,000 on the low side and 12,000 on the high side. Um, but I, I do find that that helps uh, weed out some of the clients who um, might take a lot of your your attention and your um, your focus because uh, as you know Ethan man you're as a small business owner you wear 30 different hats and they're all tugging at the same time and then you have your regular life that has all its issues and great things and scheduling and I've got four kids and life is crazy and um, so it's a challenge but uh, and as we grow, Um, one of the things I'm trying to do better with my company is really hire people who can shoulder some of that with me, people who can take some of the work off my plate so I can focus on the things that I think I'm best at. Talking about the, the client conversation and that, that pricing conversation and getting to that quick, it is important. I hear you on that and you have it on your website. You have a section about how it works. You have your basic timeline and how that's laid out. And you also have your pricing. You're you're starting at pricing for desks and beds and coffee tables and the stuff that you make regularly. When you're coming up with those prices, are you looking at those starting out prices as an average of things you've done before? Or are you looking at it as this is where my turn the lights on money comes from? I need to have this much minimum invested into each piece for it to make sense for the shop. This is um, this is an area I've grown in because early on, you know, you price a piece and you're just excited. Sometimes you get a really cool job and you don't even care about the profit because it's just an exciting piece to build. Um, As I've been able to get a couple hundred pieces under my belt now, I know the things I like to do and I know the things I don't like to do uh, with greater clarity. And so um, sometimes the price comes to, I hate building this type of thing, but I'll do it if you want to pay this amount. Um, And, um, but a lot of it is based on previous work to go, okay, we built that bed and that turned out being more work than I anticipated, or it turned out being less work than I anticipated. And so we could actually pump those out faster. Um, so a lot of that comes from previous work. 
as the company's growing, we're getting larger and larger contracts. You know, when I first started working, I couldn't imagine selling a $12,000 dining table. And we're at that level now where we're getting those sorts of jobs. And um, so now it takes a little bit more uh, to get me excited about a job. You know, we, we don't take at this point, we really don't take jobs under a thousand dollars. And that's not to be like arrogant or cocky or anything like that. It's just like fiscal to some degree to go. We, we, I have overhead and I have employees to pay and we've got to do things that generate profit. And it's always the balance because I also want to be artistic and I want to have creative license. But uh, at the end of the day, that those bills come every month, whether you like it or not. And so, so part of that pricing strategy is to weed out some people and not, not again, not in an antagonistic way, but just to go, Hey, you know, if you're the client who, you know, wants a queen size bed for $400, like it's not going to happen. And we just can't even buy materials anymore at that price, you know? Um, so I, I like to give that range. I have found since I put that on my website, some pricing that it does weed out the clients who, you know, who, who want things at, you know, Ikea prices. And that's a, that's a good thing that kind of has cleared out and filtered some of that, but it also gives me a starting point. Um, and it gives me a range and, and anytime I get a job, for instance, a, a lady and I were just on the phone the other day and she'd seen a couple pieces that I did. And I was trying to explain to her the cost of, you know, epoxy and how that factors into a dining table and the difference between a table without epoxy and a table with epoxy and, and able to reference the website and some images and some pricing. And um, so all that's been, been really helpful at helping clients understand why the work that we do costs more, but in the long term, we'll probably save them money. There are a lot of furniture companies out there. There's a lot of people doing this, and there's a lot of people who have different price structures. They have different types of companies. They're you, but eight years ago when you were doing it as a hobby in your garage, or they're you 50 years from now, having done it for a lifetime and taking into account the time and value of a career. And that's how you're pricing your furniture. So there's nothing wrong and you don't have to necessarily justify your prices to yourself. You have to justify them for their quality and what goes into them and the design and the the longevity. And you have to justify that to the client, but you don't have to, but every business runs differently and has different overheads. So there are companies that can make a $400 piece of furniture and still make money on it. And there are companies that, that don't even make home goods for under a thousand dollars. And so there's, there's all types of companies. There's no right or wrong way to price it. You just have to figure out where your company sits and where you want your company to sit in that scale of furniture pricing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Talking about furniture pricing, and we've talked about money throughout this episode. How are you actually pricing your furniture. When a client comes to you, yes, you have on the website, you have the basic pricing and that's where it starts. But how are you pricing your furniture and how are you able to price it so you're getting to that estimated price fast for the client? 
Yeah, I think this has been an evolution for me to some degree, but, um, you know, previously before having my shop and all the overhead of an employee and everything, you know, there was a much bigger profit margin on jobs. So you had the ability to take a lower paying job because you're really only paying material costs, right? Now I'm paying material costs plus shop costs, plus employee costs, plus insurance costs, plus, you know, all these other factors. And so when I price a piece, I'm not just pricing materials and what it costs for me and my uh, my staff guy to build it right like I'm there's other costs associated with building furniture and some of that is experience some of that is you're paying for my expertise because I've invested in myself educationally to get where I am and to build it with a certain quality level. Uh, but so generally, someone comes to me asking for a piece. What what I'm doing right now, and as we grow, we'll probably have to refine this. Um, is I try to, to try to um, uh, do a couple of things. So for one, I'll obviously price out the cost of the materials. So I try to get to a what would you like quickly and then you know what are the prices because in our area right now you know black walnut is about 12 to 15 dollars a board foot and red oak is about five and a half dollars a board foot so you know twice the material cost and more to go walnut over red oak um, and, and so i do a quick kind of analysis of board feet generally i add i do i calculate how much board feet i need i'll add 30 percent because you always have offcuts and things that don't fit right um, sometimes even more of that if it, depending on the nature of the job but um, and then I add I, I calculate okay how many days do I think this will take to build um, so you know if it's a simple rectangular dining table without a lot of like say it's a Parsons table I know I could probably pump that out in in four days three to four days um, so I do um, $150 a day shop fee that's kind of like my cost of paying for a shop per day and um, and then you know electricity and all, all the other things factored in and then I, I factor in a um, uh, $100 an hour. Um, so however many hours the job takes and then, I, and then I pump that together and then I add sales tax on it and I get to my my final bid. So, you know, a table that comes in that has 2000 in, in walnut cost and then it has, you know, $4,500 in labor and um, shop fee. And then it has, you know, $1,000 sales tax and then I get to my, my price point. So, and then usually I, I tell the client, hey, if you, if you, you know, you want to keep moving ahead and you want to bring the cost down, you're going to have to pick a less expensive wood, but that's not going to drop it dramatically because nowadays most of the cost in a furniture piece is in, is in labor and time. You've been incredibly open about your business and I really do appreciate that. And I know that everybody listening is getting a lot from this. And throughout the interview, we've been going back and forth and talking about things you've learned and things you do differently or things that you didn't expect and sharing advice. I'm going to ask you again to, to distill down what you've learned so far, either through your own experience with you about the furniture business, because there, there are people who want to start their own company or they've been doing it and want to do it better. So for those people, for people out there who love the furniture business and are hearing your story and and relating to it, what's some advice that you could share? I think for a lot of people, um, launching your own business is kind of like having kids. You know, we all say like, we're going to have kids when the time's right. And there's really no right time. 
it's there's always going to be challenges there's always going to be conflicts there's always going to be something that wants to hold you back and sometimes that's internal it's your own head going i don't know if i can do this or i don't know if i can um support us and and everyone's context is different right mine is i'm a, a married father four kids and living in an expensive area and so um so i need to be wise with my decision making in that um as people are considering the future for them, I think I think for one thing, make sure you have current sales. If you're not doing current sales, you're probably not going to uh, have a great start uh, when you launch. So make sure you have work coming in and that it's not just a, a dream, but it's an actual reality. So go do the hard work if you aren't doing it yet. Um, I think a lot of small business guys and women would be smart to, to consider, again, that that profit instead of just revenue. It's great if you sell a million dollars of furniture in a year, but if you don't make any profit or you can't pay yourself, you know, if you have nine hundred and ninety nine thousand dollars in expenses, it's it's, you know, not a fun place to be in. So um, trying to really kind of be ruthless with that without losing your soul and being you know, mindful of being a good business owner, owner and operating well, um, I think. Another thing is kind of just know your your strengths and know your weaknesses. I think that's something I've been learning to just go, hey, I, for the life of me, I cannot build a great website. I want to. I can see a good website and tell you it's a great website, but I I can't build it myself. And so know when to just pay and outsource for the areas that that you're you're weak in. Um, and then I think um, I think for those who are starting out. Um, you kind of set the tone for your company early on. And that's not to say you can't change that down the road, but if you start out as the guy who's, you know, building things cheap for cheap, then people are going to know you as, Hey, he's the guy you can call when you need something, you know, uh, that's not going to cost a lot of money. But if you start out just going, Hey, I'm going to hold to a, a high price, not to, not to uh, just be high for the sake of being high, but knowing like, hey, if I want to do this full time someday, I need to build the clients that are going to be the right fit for the future business. And so I was fortunate for me when I started early, I got known locally as kind of the expensive woodworker, the expensive furniture guy. So if you come to Joel, it's going to cost more money. Um, and that that actually has served me well now, now that I'm full time, I think it's brought in the type of clients I want. And it's weeded out people who are, you know, want you to fix the door for $50. Um, so, um, and then I think just know your context. Uh, and this is like, Instagram can dilute this a little because you just forget that like these other companies don't exist where you exist and they operate with different um, realities than you do. Everyone has their headaches. It's just what, what are your headaches going to be? And so, um, you know, trying not to compare like, you know, the guy who gets a free $4,000 shop from his uncle and, you know, in the country is going to have way less overhead than you do, but he might have a, a whole slew of shipping hassles that you don't have to go through because you have, you know, 20 million people within two hour drive of you and you can deliver everything yourself. So, um, so just know your context, you know, what I charge for a piece, um, it may not be what I would charge if I was, you know, somewhere where the the income wasn't as high. Um, so trying to understand that um, and, and and understand your context, I think, is just a really big part of being successful. 
And it's something I'm still trying to do. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, you know, when you when you launch your own company, you have all these dreams of I'm finally going to have all this time to build the pieces I want to build. And then you live with the reality of like, I still got to bring an in income. And so we got to take jobs that, you know, aren't exactly the dream job. They're not ideally, they're not far off from it, but they're not, you know, exactly what you want to do, but they pay the bills. And so um, so there's just so many things to consider, but I think, you know, at some point the, I think wisdom is the ability to kind of look ahead in time and see where you want to be and then to know how to take the steps to get there. And so, um, so do that. So look, look ahead, see where you want to go and then ask yourselves what, what it's the right steps that I need to take to get to that place. So much good stuff. I feel like that last question was an entire, an entire episode in itself. That was <laughs> That was quality, quality advice. And I truly do appreciate you sharing it. And I know everybody listening feels the same way. So I want to thank you for being open about your story, about your business, about every part of this journey so far. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. Thanks so much, Ethan. It's been fun chatting with you. And I, I look forward to following along in the podcast in the future. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.